Hi, it's Mark Wasserman. Welcome to Skaboom Stories, which is the audio companion to my new book, Skaboom, an American Ska and Reggae Oral History, now available for pre-sale through DeWolf Publishing House. Now that Skaboom is in production, with a launch date of July 4th, I'm sharing a behind-the-scenes look at what readers can expect from the book. In 400-plus pages across 19 chapters, I've attempted to knit together the origin stories of groups of passionate musical pioneers who helped create a uniquely American version of ska and reggae. In this episode, I highlight the important influence that Gangster Fun from Detroit had on the growth and the popularity of the Midwestern ska scene and on ska punk bands like Mustard Plug and the Suicide Machines, who also hail from Michigan. More than most American ska bands, Gangster Fun were a product of the city they call home. In a matter of decades, Detroit went from being one of America's most prosperous cities to one of its most distressed. And during the 80s and early 90s, it was in the midst of a battle for its own soul. The city was battered by financial missteps, a horrific drug epidemic, racial tensions, and leadership lapses, which culminated in insurmountable debt that led the city to file for bankruptcy. Parts of the city became ghost towns of empty streets and burned out in abandoned homes. Though Detroit was going through some incredibly tough times, its residents developed a dark sense of humor as a coping mechanism. This absurdist sense of humor is part of what makes Gangster Fun songs and their chaotic live shows so memorable and the band so important for its contribution to a uniquely American version of ska. Here's how Jason Navarro of the Suicide Machines explained what it was like to grow up in Detroit. And it's like, I think you, you grow up in the city and it's like, you have to have some humor about it because it was so dilapidated and fucked up. Yeah. That you have to kind of laugh about shit, but you always have to kind of defend yourself and defend your, where you come from too, because a lot of people fuck Detroit, fuck that shithole. And you'd be like, yo, that's, that's my city. Like, I'm talking about my city that way. I don't care if you're from of mine and you're in town from, you know, San Francisco. You need to shut your fucking mouth. Like, yeah, yeah, you're right. It is fucked up. But you know what? Don't talk shit about it. Like, you know, I, I would definitely say that all of us have this weird, fucked up sense of pride about existing in the city, probably because it was really not easy to exist in the city. <laughs> you know, right. Here's what Dave Kirchgesner of Mustard Plug had to say about the Detroit music scene of the late 80s and early 90s. Detroit has always had a more aggressive scene, like the vibe to it. It's, it's you know, it was a you know, dangerous place back in the 80s. 
And, um, you know, and the scene itself, I'd, I'd say was a dangerous place. Um, there were more like, especially like Detroit. I mean, the clubs were in terrifying neighborhoods <laughs> a lot of times. And there were a lot of like, kind of like skinhead gangs or punk gangs. Um, and so, the, and just Midwest in general, I think is always like more aggressive music. I mean, if you go back to the sixties, Detroit was picking out the studios at MC5. Well, you know, I don't know the, the, you know, West Coast is picking out Grateful Dead. You, you know what I mean? Yeah. So, so I think, um, the, the shows and the culture of the underground music scene and, and even the ska that got churned out of Detroit always had like more of a, an aggressive feel. Gangster fun, taking their name from the specials Gangsters, and the fun they had seeing Bad Manners, started out as a two-tone influence band when they formed in the mid-80s at Oakland University outside Detroit. There was no ska scene to speak of in Detroit or Michigan for that matter, save for the band SLK, who predated Gangster Fun when they formed in Ann Arbor in 1982, before calling it quits in 1985. They are also one of the earliest American ska bands and another band I wish I could have included in the book. Here's SLK performing Trigger Talk. So when Gangster Fun started in 1986, there was zero ska scene in Detroit. The truth is, there weren't enough ska bands to form a scene. And though people were excited when the band started, it had absolutely no effect on creating a ska scene in the city. In many ways, 
The band were seen as being part of the larger Detroit music scene, playing shows with punk and hardcore bands, and that likely had a lot to do with how they got so popular so fast. Because they were the only Detroit ska band for a number of years, it also helps explain how Gangster Fun became the surrogate ska band for much of the Midwest. The band's shows featured frequent fights in the audience, stage diving, improvised set lists, and magic tricks on stage. You can't ask for more than that. Though their sound was rooted in two-tone, Gangster Fun had a penchant for playing ska covers of classic rock songs, which formed the bedrock of Midwestern musical culture. Noted Chicago-based ska DJ and Jump Up Records head honcho Chuck Wren explained this particularly Midwestern take on ska. You know, we were a different breed. We were, you know, we weren't the East Coast. We weren't the West Coast. We weren't part of this world that somehow, you know, thought that those were the only two extremes, you know. Mm. We were always, you know, the underdogs. You know, we were people who grew up on, you know, Ted Nugent, you know, and stuff like that, you know. And, you know, as much as you found mocking that, you know, it's like watching that 70s show, you know. It's like all that kind of stuff they make fun of, you know, music-wise. That's what every Midwest kid was fighting against, right? Yeah. And to a certain extent, by fighting against it, you kind of mimic it. And by mimic it, you kind of throw it in your in your music out of almost some sort of joke, you know? And then it just sort of becomes part of you. So, you know, bands like all those Midwest bands have kind of through some sort of bizarro, you know, classic rock influence or these kind of bizarre guitar riffs were in some ways putting a new spin on two-tone through ironically playing two-tone. <laughs> you, know? you know, it's like, yeah, we know what two-tone is and we're choosing to do something different. Yeah, yeah. You know, this, you know, we're throwing these crazy, you know, bits in because we can, because no one here is going to call us on our bullshit. You know, <laughs> you know, there's no scene police here because we barely have a crowd coming out in general. You know, then no one's going to call us on this. You know, we're going to have fun with it. And I think that's what always made what well, a lot of what came out of the Midwest at the time. And even in the 90s, it was just a sort of brazen, well, we're not you. We're not you. You don't like us or, you know, you don't seem to like what we do. So we do what we want to do, you know. And that's kind of why I did Scothic. It's just like, look at this. This is this is crazy. This is something different. You know, it's not this, it's not that, you know, and if you don't like it, then don't buy it. But for all the people in the Midwest who do like it, you know, here's something they can rally around. You know, here's a flag. As much fun as this sounds, it was considered blasphemy by more traditional ska fans in the early nineties, but was super popular with their fans in Detroit and the Midwest. The band's guitarist, David Minnick explained their approach to classic rock. It's just, the idea of doing a, a a double tempo cover of Carry On My Wayward Sons with the ska, it's just a, an unlikely thing to hear, you know, and uh, yes. we, we enjoyed that. We weren't criticizing the music because we discovered through doing covers of this music that it was actually really well put together. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it was it was just something that we felt that nobody else was doing. And so we, we had a whole slew of, of these classic rock covers and we'd put, we'd usually put those together pretty quickly. I think we did Bohemian Rhapsody once. <laughs> <laughs> no, did you, did you guys rehearse 
this or was it purely um, uh, improvised on stage? Uh, some of them were just improvised on stage, but usually we'd at least come up with, you know, here's the chord progression. And then uh, see if somebody, anybody could remember the words. And <laughs> but some of them we practiced a lot. Like, uh, excuse me, uh, LaGrange by ZZ Top. We actually uh, orchestrated that and wrote horn lines and everything. Have a listen to the band's version of the ZZ Top classic. This anything-goes approach to their live show soon became their calling card, and as word spread about them, they started to draw bigger and bigger crowds, routinely selling out the 1,000-capacity St. Andrews Hall in Detroit. Seeing the band live there had a life-changing effect on Jason Navarro. Yeah, it was like the demilitarized zone in Detroit. I did, I'm not saying that there weren't fights and this could happen, or, or anything scary could happen, because... It was just this weird, like, demilitarized zone. And to me at the time, I was like, ah, 
I can go to a show and not worry about getting killed or beat up and actually have a good time. And Gangster Fun came on, and I had never seen anything like it in my life yet. Hmm. And they were, and still to this day, I will say, I've seen a lot of bands that play our genre that we're involved in. Mm -hmm. And I will still tell you to this day, when those guys were firing on all, and like at their moment, their peak, their heyday, like uh, like come see, come Scott through like uh, time flies in your gangster fun. They were unstoppable, still comparably to bands today. Like they were unbelievably. John, I still think is the bone of the best front people I've ever seen on a mic, hands down. And and their humor was fantastic. So it was strange for me to see that sort of humor. Yeah. You know, I'm not saying it wasn't deadly serious humor because it was very, at times, like a brown paper bag, like I want to put my drugs in it. You know what I mean? Like it was right. it, it was funny, but it was still like Detroit. What's abundantly clear is the undeniable influence Gangster Fund's dangerous live shows, mixed with their comedic take on ska, had on both the Suicide Machines and Mustard Plug. Here's what Dave Kirchgesner shared. You know, at the time, I, I honestly thought that Midwest ska, like in the early 90s, was like had the best seat anywhere. I'm sure everyone else feels that about their scenes, but it's, it's, I feel like it's kind of gotten overlooked. 
And, um, you know, especially gangster fun has gotten completely overlooked by a lot of people. And, um, so I think it's, it's really good. They were in the, in the Midwest, they were, you know, as, as big as whatever band was on the East coast. You know what I mean? They're like our toasters, our bim, scala bim, roll into one or whatever. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Scott Boom Stories. The book is now available for pre-sale through DeWolf Publishing at DeWolf.com. That's D-I-W-U-L-F.com. The first 500 pre-sale orders will receive a free 80-minute CD mix called Scott American Style, courtesy of DJ Chuck Wren and Jump Up Records, which digs deep into the obscure world of privately pressed records, proving that American ska roots were firmly planted during the 80s alternative music underground. Visit DeWolf.com to order. And if you've listened and received some value from this episode, then please help support the podcast for as little as $3 per month on Patreon. Just go to patreon.com backslash Podcast for more information. Thanks and take care.